Hello and good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is February the 15th, 10.30 UAE time, and oil is trading a little bit softer in Asia this morning. Uh, Brent crude oil at $81.25 a barrel, uh, down uh, a little bit uh, less than half a percent uh, uh, on morning trade. Uh, down a little bit the, through the week, uh, uh, giving up some of the 6% gains from last week. Um, let's kick off this morning with Dr. Carl Nackley, CEO of Crystal Energy. Uh, Carl, lovely to have you back. Your thoughts on, on the direction of travel at the moment. The markets seem to be a little bit uh, stuck neither here nor there, even though the context, still a raging war in Gaza, uh, equity markets and other financial markets soaring to record new highs, but oil left in the corner all by itself to do not very much. Your thoughts on the direction of travel at the moment? Good morning, Sean. Good morning, everybody. Well, you're absolutely right in terms of there's so much action happening on the ground in terms of geopolitics with wars um, uh, in Europe, uh, still ongoing, the war in Ukraine. And then we saw some escalation over the last few days. And also uh, Gaza still ongoing. We also saw attacks and exchanges of fire between Israel and Lebanon. Um, I mean, I, I cannot imagine such a scenario happening uh, maybe 10 years ago without seeing panic across markets, particularly in oil markets. But today this is not happening. And this is a reflection of different um, uh, dynamics, particularly the changes in market conditions that there is, relatively speaking, too much supply despite the cuts in OPEC for too little uh, growth in demand. I mean, the economic factors, the macroeconomic outlook is still weighing down on uh, on the global economy, but also on oil markets in particular. We see positive signs, but does not mean that um, we are in, everything is growing rapidly. And that's the problem we get from the news. So sometimes you get some positive signals from the data but you cannot change the whole outlook base, for example, on one month of good data. We have to wait to ensure that we are in the right, um, uh, on the right path. Uh, the economy is performing better, at least in the West. China, I'm still very cautious about the outlook for China because these structural problems are not going to dissipate overnight. So on balance, we understand why when we look deeper into the market dynamics, the economic outlook, we can, we can understand why the geopolitical dimension is being not overlooked, but it's not having the same impact as it would have in a tight market. Neil Atkinson, former head of oil markets division at the International Energy Agency. Neil, we saw this week OPEC uh, release its monthly report, and we had comments uh, from your former <coughs> colleague, Fatih Barol, the head of the IEA, uh, both uh, telling us a very different story, OPEC plus still forecasting a 2.2 million barrel a day oil demand growth for 2024. Uh, the IEA, at least Fatih Barol this week, saying, it, no, no, it's only uh, 1.2, and there's plenty of supply around to cover that. Your thoughts, A, about the difference between those two, 1 million barrels, uh, and, and, and which one do you think the market looks to be guided by at this point? Well, <laughs> I don't think I can remember uh, a time when the divergence between the outlooks for something uh, such as oil demand growth between the two agencies was so wide. Uh, I really don't remember it. 
Uh, and I'm afraid uh, the only thing I can think of to explain the difference between the two is that they are both talking their book. Uh, the IEA is in the, the peak oil demand camp, uh, which, uh, according to them, is within sight, i.e. before the end of this decade. And the OPEC secretariat uh, almost find it hard to conceive that oil could demand could ever possibly be. <coughs> So they're in the onwards and upwards continuous uh, growth in demand as far into the future as you can reasonably forecast. The IEA think it's going to peak in uh, less than five years' time. And uh, I, I think to some extent they're talking their own book. If I were forced against a wall and asked to pick between one of the current outlooks, the big one from OPEC, the lesser one from the IEA, uh, I'd uh, beg to be allowed to say, well, it'll be somewhere in between. Because I don't think it will be as low as the one, uh, 1 1.1 million, whatever it is, 1.2 the IEA's got. Uh, but I certainly do see no justification for a real gangbuster increase that the OPEC Secretariat are talking about because of the, uh, as Carol was alluding to, the uh, structural economic problems in China. Uh, a lot of the post-COVID uh, rebound in demand has uh, sort of happened. We still have a lag in uh, aviation. So I think uh, the answer probably lies between the two uh, agencies. But there is a serious d uh, discussion to be had about why the agencies are so diverse in their outlook. Mehmed Agutu, uh, Group CEO, Global Resources Partnership and Chairman of the London Energy Club. Mehmed, one of the things, as Carl mentioned, obviously geopolitics in the region uh, uh, conflict in the region and, and obviously in Europe still. But one of the question marks uh, in the region has been, can the uh, sort of rapprochement, the, the, the new sort of coming together that we saw pre-October 7 still survive uh, Saudi, Iran most notably, but also Egypt and uh, Turkey and Turkey finding its way back into the family of nations in the Arab world. Uh, your thoughts on that uh, on the, in the light of uh, Erdogan's visit to Egypt, uh, that these big, big rapprochement negotiations, discussions that were going on pre-October 7 can survive post-October 7? Yes, Sean. First, I, I want to share my opinion that... Please. Uh, uh, before coming to Turkey's rapprochement uh, with the regional powers, uh, if you look at the recent developments in terms of Saudi Arabia shelving expansion plans for further uh, increase in production and uh, demand declining, of course, in uh, China, uh, to the contrary, we were expecting demand to pick up in China. It hasn't happened yet. And uh, also, most importantly, I think the signal coming from IOCs, international oil companies, and they are now heavily investing in low-cost oil around the world and buying new assets because their uh, target is something like the cost should be below $34. For total, it's below even $30. So it shows a tendency that they are worried about the future. Now they make good money in the current price circumstances, but they're also factoring in and projecting uh, further uh, demand decline and price going down. So they have to take their uh, measures right now. It's already happening. So this is a signal. And regarding Turkey, since 2021, Erdogan has recalibrated uh, his foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the region. 
seeing that he was more or less isolated in the region. So rapprochement started with Saudi Arabia, then UAE. I think it's going very well. And with Israel also it started, it was about to be crowned with a visit by uh, Netanyahu a few days before uh, Hamas attack occurred and following uh, Gaza uh, massacres. And uh, so I think Israel relations still now going to be for a long time on the breach. But with Egypt, the most important country in the Middle East in terms of uh, population and influence in the Arabic world, I think this was an ice-breaking visit because Erdogan didn't say nice things about Sisi when he took over from uh, Morsi. And it took some time for confidence to be rebuilt. And now the agreement they signed, high-level strategic uh, collaboration between the two countries, is quite important in terms of increasing the trade, also taking joint strategic approach vis-a-vis -vis what Israel is doing in Gaza, defense collaboration in energy, especially LNG and renewables. So there are many areas of collaboration, but one has to wait and see because you can sign uh, tens of uh, pages full of agreements, but what matters is the implementation. However, this is the first step. I think it's going to go move forward. And then on Cyprus also, there is some movement where Just I don't before think... Before we get to onto the Cyprus piece, can Turkey together... I mean, we, in Egypt, we had obviously the negotiation, the attempts to uh, negotiate a settlement on Israel's war on Gaza. Can Turkey play a role in that? And uh, what would that role look like? Supporting Egypt, or what is that? What's your 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 vision or your thoughts on Turkey's role in this clearly very serious crisis in the Levant in the East Med? Um, and, and does Turkey have a role to find a settlement? Well, I mean, as you know, Turkey is the largest power to reckon with in the Middle East and East Med. Therefore. If Turkey plays it smartly and in collaboration with the regional partners, paying attention to sensitivities, I think Turkey is bound to play an important role there. But there will be a role sharing or competition with uh, UAE as well as Egypt. So I think this visit probably uh, removes some of the clouds about the mutual suspicions between the countries. So now, if they are going to act together with Egypt, and it seems that Iran, Iraq, Syria, Syria not yet, but Iran, Iraq especially, is quite keen to join the bloc. So there might be a regional uh, sort of a grouping which will work together, which is easier said than done, but there is such an intention. And Erdogan, if he plays his hand well, not acting as if he is the leader of this grouping, but as a responsible member of this grouping, and I think win-win uh, way, uh, Turkey could play a quite positive role because it has good relations with Hamas alongside Qatar, as you know. It can influence Hamas somehow, as well as Al-Fat. Well, I saw yesterday a rather her her sort of about horrific uh, commentary from the one of the Republican candidates in the U.S. saying that, well, all the Palestinians can leave Gaza and go to uh, the Hamas supporting countries like Turkey. Uh, so uh, not a, you know, it's a, a kind of a, uh, obviously a, a way of thinking in a certain part of the American body politic, but it's certainly one uh, in the region and where these regional powers stand on that issue of uh, uh, opening the doors at the Rafa crossing. It's it, the pressure must be building, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Carol, I wanted to get your thoughts on 
where we are vis-a-vis the uh, impact of what appears to be now a a higher for longer rate cycle, particularly with the Fed. Uh, The inflation numbers have come in. The U.S. economy is still looking strong. Uh, Is that good or bad for oil prices and the outlook for oil markets that rates will stay higher for longer? Or does it have a bearing? I think that the oil markets have already factored in the current scenario of rates, but where people are looking at these days is when will the rate cuts start? And lots of people are already betting on seeing several cuts uh, this year, at least in the US, but also in other uh, important economic regions, such as in, uh, in the EU. But we keep on hearing from the Federal Reserve, from Powell and other people, that you should not make early bets on rate cuts, but it seems that on balance, we can expect to see those high cuts, those high rates, the record high rates, maybe to to start to ease sometimes this year. I don't know when, we still have to wait for more positive data to come and not just a month or two, but something more convincing that you're on the right path. And this is when we can expect. How would that affect oil markets? As I said, I mean, high rates have already been factored in. Of course, when rates start to decline, that should provide a boost to economic activity and that should be supportive of economic growth and oil demand. How much would that be? It's not going to be a boom overnight. It's going to be a gradual increase, but there are other factors than just depending on the interest I mean, rate. So the, the interest the, rate is one of the factors. The reason yeah. I ask is because we had seen previously, you know, the fourth quarter, the end of the year closed out with this expectation from the markets of of an early cut in rates like i.e. March and then significantly going from there six, seven cuts through the year. The markets have backed away from that. But nonetheless, that scale of cuts would seem to indicate to me at least of a very serious economic uh, downturn. And so that can't be good for oil prices if if cuts indicate economic weakness. Yeah, but if cuts are needed, if inflation has been tamed, that's why you use the interest. So there is another way of looking at it. So if you use the interest rate to tame inflation, inflation is not good because it creates weaker, uh, more economic problem. Then if you start to gradually wind down interest rate because you have achieved your mission, that's how I would look at it more than necessarily the economy entering into recession because the economic data so far is reflecting a good outlook for at least the American economy. And the rates, the, the high rates are not, needed maybe for too long because the bank the central bank feels that it has achieved its mission so it's not really like a clear cut we can engage in a very long discussion yeah, yeah. about that so i that's why i kind of i think it's it's kind of in this weird neutral space that uh cuts are good or bad i mean they obviously depend i love is in the beauties in the eye of the beholder and all of that but it, it's not clear to me that it's one and one is two in this instance neil i wanted to get your thoughts on Comments earlier this week from the Saudi energy minister about maintaining idle capacity and that why should Saudi Arabia continue to burden this very expensive uh, infrastructure if it's not being appreciated and the likes of the U.S., which he pointed towards, I'm not sure if he specifically said U.S., but he did say that if countries are just going to use strategic reserves every time they don't like the price, 
why should we maintain this very expensive uh, emergency supply capacity? Uh, your thoughts on that as a, as a sort of a statement from the biggest oil exporting country in the world and, uh, and, and what that could signal going forward? Well, the, the, the Saudis uh, primarily have, have, of course, been sitting on significant spare capacity for as many years as most of us can remember. Uh, nothing like as much as they were sitting on in the 1980s, of course. And of course, it does make perfect sense, because if uh, oil demand growth in the next uh, few years is going to be lower, growth lower, not demand, uh, and there's still going to be plenty of supply from other parts of the world, uh, the United States, Canada, Brazil, Guyana, and one or two others, then sure, yeah, why would you need to increase your capacity? Well, we've had the answer to that uh, already a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it, it is an entirely reasonable question. But on the other hand, what the Saudis, uh, you know, the, the problem the Saudis have is uh, is they, they don't seem to recognize, well, they, they do know this, of course. The United States does not have an oil minister. You know, there is no central planning as far as oil production in the United States is concerned. It's an entirely private sector business. Uh, production rises and falls depending on market conditions and as to whether it's profitable or not. Now, as far as the SPR is concerned, uh, I, I've uh, felt for many years now that since the United States domestic production, crude oil went up from 5 million barrels a day in 2007, I think, to 13 million barrels a day or so now, there is clearly no need to maintain a domestic uh, stockpile such as the United States had at 700 million barrels in these new conditions when you have so much domestic production capacity of your own. And indeed, even before the uh, uh, the drawdowns that the Biden administration made in 2022, which was a blatantly political act because prices are rising ahead of the midterms, even before then, under the Obama administration, the U.S. had passed legislation to make phased drawdowns from the SPR because they recognized it no longer to need to be needed at 700 million barrels. Uh, my feeling is, is that as we move through 2024, if the oil market were to tighten as we move through the year, and you know, I doubt that it will, but if it were actually to do so, and the price signals were flashing bright red as far as the, uh, the US gasoline uh, consumer is concerned, then I would not be surprised if there were more SPR drawdowns. Uh, and that is just a fact of life. And I'm afraid the Saudis and others just need to suck it up. It's, uh, it's a fact of life and get over it. Okay. Um, I wanted to, to also get uh, your views, Mehmet, on, we had some news today, yesterday, India's uh, Prime Minister here developing further infrastructure with uh, the UAE providing, uh, you know, a whole new uh, uh, um, warehousing facilities, etc., for uh, Indian businesses to operate out of the Gulf uh, and of course, this comes a few months after the grand announcement uh, uh, at the G20 that India corridor into the Middle East uh, uh, and, and somehow connecting through to the Med and Israel seems like a, another universe now. Um, but does a project like that still have legs? Uh, what's the India growing footprint in the Middle East and Gulf look like to you? It is increasing, actually, because this is the one of the primary goals of the Indian government. Uh, first for its own needs, but also counter China in the region. In that regard, I think there is a clear understanding between Washington, uh, Delhi, as well as uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, Israel. 
also, I mean, what's happening in Israel, perhaps put this in cloud for a while, but there is a clear understanding that in the region, uh, there is need for a power to counter somehow China's growing influence in the Gulf, including Iran and uh, Arab Peninsula, as well as in the Middle East. So this first project that you mentioned, G20, G20 uh, during the G20, it was announced. I don't think it's going to go anywhere anytime soon. First, we were, of course, very skeptical about its financial uh, size. Who is going to finance that? Then the route coming all the way from Mumbai to Dubai, then Riyadh and Jordan, Israel, then Greece. It's very complicated. Trains, ships involved. So it's not going to happen anytime soon. Red Sea crisis, of course, should be an, adding salt into the wound. Uh, but I think India is quite adamant as they were doing in Central Asia somehow, but now they want to do it more and more in the Gulf as well. So how successful they are going to be also depends, of course, on India's power. But India depends heavily on imports, especially oil and gas coming from the region, the construction work and elsewhere. But it's difficult for India to compete with China, perhaps, where they have huge resources mobilized and uh, defense collaboration, economic uh, collaboration, bribery, corruption, whatever you name it. And therefore, I don't think that India will be a good fit for China, at least in the foreseeable future. But the U.S. will be pushing together with India to reduce China's imprint in the region. In, in the Middle East. Uh, let's go to the survey question and get a, a view of the room on, on, on some of those points made earlier. Uh, the what are the chances that Israel's war on Gaza could still spill over into a regional conflict threatening energy supplies from the Middle East? I mean, the markets had essentially discounted that as as close to zero. But this, you know, the Israelis walked out of the peace talks in in in, in Cairo over the last few days. We've had, as Carol mentioned. Uh, the border between Lebanon and Israel, uh, there was apparently skirmishes there yesterday, which saw Hezbollah rockets go deeper into Israel than they have over the last four months. Israel reacted, of course, uh, as this tit for tat keeps going on. Uh, is the oil markets, are the energy markets in general discounting this possibility too much, uh, uh, as there, there seems to be no accounting for it in the current oil price. I'm just wondering what the view in the room and, and, and our wider network feels about the chances of this still happening. Uh, close to zero, close to 25%, close to 50-50, close to 75%. This is still very likely, I suppose. That's what that's saying, closer to 75%. But where do you think this likelihood currently sits. Uh, and I suppose every week it might look differently. So we just assess it from what we vantage point of this week. Um, Carol, I also wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the markets seem to also somewhat discount, dismiss, not give too much credence to the Saudi energy minister's comments earlier this week of, uh, we're not sure if we still want to be a swing producer anymore. Uh, uh, your thoughts on those comments? Uh, is that overreading them uh, going forward to the end of this year when quotas have to be renegotiated? We saw Angola leave OPEC plus OPEC last December, the difficult meeting. So I'm just wondering, where do you think that statement lands uh, about uh, Saudi Arabia's place in the global energy markets? 
I look, if I look at uh, the production cost and the size of reserves of Saudi Arabia and its spare capacity, I think it would be one of the very few last standing countries, producers in the world in the, as the energy transition accelerates. And we're still far from a scenario where we'll have this only like a tiny group of producers, but um, dominating the market. But I think I would have thought it's not just the volume of production that gives Saudi Arabia its power and influence on the market. It's primarily its spare capacity. But of course, you don't want to have too much spare capacity, as earlier you and Neil discussed, but not also not too little. So to lose that, not to have that, will take away from the influence of Saudi Arabia uh, in oil markets. Now, of course, you know you can read it in, in different ways, but I would say Saudi Arabia spare capacity will continue to play an important role. And that would make that what makes it a swing producer in a sense that it wants to continue to act at the central bank of oil markets as they always wanted to, to do. And this is where it get their really major power and influence over the markets. So when you watch OPEC or OPEC plus meetings, I listen very carefully and I watch very carefully what Saudi Arabia is going to do because they are the one who can really influence the direction of travel for the group and for, um, uh, for oil markets. Uh, so this is how I see it. Not only that, I would add one more dimension, which people don't discuss as the energy transition accelerate, is the issue of carbon intensity. Saudi Arabia does not only have the low cost of production and the massive reserves, but they also have one of the lowest carbon intensity of their oil. So when other producers are going to leave the market in a greener future, Saudi Arabia's oil will continue to have an advantage on many fronts, including from a climate change perspective. Neil, just to sort of follow on from your earlier comment about the the fact the U.S. doesn't need to rebuild those strategic petroleum reserves, which had grown up to above 700 million barrels. They're now, of course, half of that. But there has been a sort of an expectation in the market uh, that they would rebuild them. Uh, and they said as much, well, every, we will, I think they, the American government said they would buy a if prices drop to 70 or something, but they never did. Uh, should the market still expect that or is that a, 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 a that horse isn't running in the race anymore? Uh, I don't think, the, I think that horse is uh, still in the stables, uh, mm. uh, gently grazing. And uh, uh, it's not an imperative for the US to rebuild the stocks, as I suggested earlier on. There is no uh supply shortage i'm i'm firmly in the camp that there will, will that there is close to 0% chance of uh, escalation in the middle east affecting the oil markets and i just don't think it's uh, an important political imperative for the united states uh, at this moment in time uh and it's more likely if uh, as i said if we go through 2024 and there are price pressures you will find that the uh, the Republican Party will hammer the Biden administration about any price increases that do come through, uh, even though they'll be the result of uh, geo, uh, geo uh, sorry, a uh, global supply demand uh, uh, pressures. Uh, but and the, the Biden administration will release if it feels it's in its political interest to do so. But I, I doubt it will happen, actually, because I just don't think there are the price pressures, the upward price pressures out there in the market. As far as we can see through 2024, OPEC is going to have to OPEC plus is going to have to extend the cuts through the year. I think that's almost a given. And uh, so I think the upward- all of the cuts like the the this voluntary ones, the Saudi yeah. exclusive, the absolutely yeah. six million. It, yeah, absolutely. No, And if you do believe that. Uh, uh, you know, if you believe uh, that demand is going to grow 
comfortably this year, let's say, not by the massive amounts that OPEC Secretariat are talking about, but it does grow comfortably. But on the other hand, we've got more expansion from the US, from Canada, Brazil, and various other places, Guyana, then uh, the market will be quite nicely balanced. And that's what the supply-demand uh, balance looks like currently going through the year. Builds in the early part of the year, uh, tighter later on in the year. But, uh, you know, those numbers are going to change. Mehmed, the, the earlier comment about <laughs> the difference between the IEA uh, forecast of global oil growth, demand growth in 2024, they're at 2.2 million. The IEA is at 1.2 million barrels a day. Uh, that's uh, 365 million barrels of a difference for the year. But the 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 idea that that gap maybe revolves around your interpretation of how weak Chinese demand growth will be this year. It was quite strong last year coming out of COVID. Obviously, you'd expect that. But uh, where is China at? You've obviously been a long-time China watcher. You're based there. You, you know the. What's your sense of the challenge that China currently faces? We had one commentator on yesterday saying that it's 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 kin to a you know a, a major depression potentially, given the challenges they're facing, demographics, uh, real estate, you know, debt. There's the things pile up on top of each other. How serious a moment do you this think this is for China? I think the biggest challenge in China, as far as I can see, because I was there a couple of weeks ago and talked to a range of people in the industry, is uh, FDI is not no longer coming as strongly as it used to, because FDI has been the engine of Chinese production and exports. And also existing foreign direct investment in the country, especially in the hinterland, are gradually preparing, some of them preparing to leave. China in the expectation that in the future, if there is going to be a confrontation between the US and China, they don't want to be caught in crossfire. Of course, there are some long-standing investors. I mean, uh, for example, Germany is still strong in China. They still increase their FTI. But the US companies, Japanese companies are increasingly in the mood of leaving. This is the biggest concern. Uh, and the Chinese are asking help for this. And then also, I think money supply is in short right now in China, many people expected that, you know, China was investing heavily abroad in uh, minerals, mines, oil, gas production. No longer you have these Chinese companies having the same appetite. Therefore, Even on the, the Belt Road Initiative is kind of dead or? It's not that because it's already, I mean, it's the brainchild of Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping. It's already enshrined in the Chinese constitution. It will continue. They spend up to now almost one trillion dollars in Belt and Road Initiative. No nation on earth could do this for such uh, interconnectivity. However, there are problems with Belt and Road Initiative because Chinese are operating on commercial basis and uh, they try to take over some of the concrete tangible assets rather than giving loans and whatever to this country. So there are controversies on this issue, but still it's the only guy in the, it's the only man in town in a way supporting infrastructure projects. But this is decreasing now, as it's not as strong as it used to be. So this is also part of a conscious US strategy to contain China, but also domestically make it quite difficult for Chinese economy to grow. That's also one of the explanations why there is less demand now in China for uh, energy uh, imports from abroad. And therefore, also, I think one serious concern 
the U.S. has, I think during the last IEA ministerial in Paris, U.S. Secretary for Energy clearly said that we are very worried about being over-reliant for critical raw materials and rare earth on a country which doesn't share values with us. It's interesting that she brings the value issue to this uh, energy uh, equation. Therefore, yeah, that I is uh, that is certainly uh, one. Uh, that's also quite an issue in the context of um, the current crisis in the Red Sea, because of also a lot of the material going up the Red Sea is is uh, you know renewable energy infrastructure and materials coming from China. But we'll have to leave it there. It's really a critical point. Where does China go this year? Uh, <clears throat> close to zero, close to 25%, uh, 50-50 in this room. Uh, we'll have to see where the wider market thinks of that question. Uh, and I say every week that might be a different answer. But uh, uh, Brent crude oil trading down uh, very slightly in early Asian trade at 81.38. Thank you so much, Carol Nagli, as always, uh, Mehmet and Neil Akers. Thank you very much. All the best and have a great day.